dogs? Have you seen dogs with those teeth hanging out where she needs to feed her puppies? I mm-hmm. was one of those ugly dogs who just was desperate to get somewhere and then unuse it. They're not going to learn from me. I will tell them or be this, be successful, be everything. I have to teach them in action how it has to happen. And that's what was driving me. Welcome to the Unfair Advantage Project. Unique perspectives, practical insights, and unexpected discoveries directly focused on giving you the unfair advantage. Introducing your hosts, Nadia Hughes and Terrence Toe. Welcome to the Unfair Advantage Project. I'm Terrence Toe, Managing Director of Strategic Corporation, and today my co-host here. Welcome, Nadia. I'm Nadia Hughes, and I'm from Unfair Advantage Accounting, and I'm very happy to be here. And today, we're really excited, and hopefully I get the pronunciation right. Bobby Capuccio? Close. Impressively spot on. Ah. I was called Cappuccino all through school. (laughs) I have called you Cappuccino on my post today. I said that I'm going to have podcast with you, and you are going to be late because you need to go to have your Cappuccino. So So you were taking the piss. That's a bit different. Oh, well, is it okay? That's Nadia's... Nadia. Nadia. I will live for it. <laughs> it's Nadia's way to show affection, just to have a dig. Bobby, what I would like today to zoom into is your coaching, your views on coaches, because a lot of our listeners are going to try once in a lifetime or many times to engage coaches in their life to help them to um, excel in what they're doing to excel their business, to help them with finances, to help their personal growth. What's your view on coaching is? And what is actually coaching? What should we be looking for? That's a really great question because the issue with coaching is to a lot of people, it's so ambiguous. I can't wrap my head around what the value is because I don't quintessentially understand how it's defined. And when you look at definitions of coaching from you know Tim Galloway, from John Kabat-Zinn, very brilliant people. They're kind of long and very expansive. And although they're brilliant, you know, sometimes people don't remember what they actually are. And I think one of the most succinct definitions of coaching was from the scientist Jeffrey Schwartz that said, coaching is a process by which you basically facilitate neuroplasticity. And that's really succinct, but what does that mean? How do you facilitate neuroplasticity? And so I I thought about that for a while and said, well, coaching is the process where you give tools and hold space for someone where you allow them to acquire the resources to be at their most resourceful in engaging in the behaviors that develop changes within the brain that support the changes that they want most in a certain aspect of their lives. So that's how I would define what coaching actually means. And in practical sense, how would you achieve that? Well, if you want to take a look at it from, you know, that's a very good question. It's a very big answer. If you want to take a look at it from an MI, a motivational interviewing perspective, let's say, you know, there are a few things that a coach needs to do. And the first thing is develop discrepancies. So if you look at what a coach has been historically, it's been a means of travel, right? So if this was the latter part of the 19th century and we were in a major city, 
Well, there were horses pulling this big carriage behind them, a coach. And you would get on that coach because you wanted to go from where you were standing to where that coach was heading. So go from point A to point B. So the first thing we need to do is identify what are your current behaviors and in what ways are they supporting you or in what ways are these behaviors not supporting you and develop discrepancies between your current behavior patterns and your desired outcomes. That's first and foremost. Second, well, I need to develop belief. I'm only going to engage in things to the degree that I believe, one, they're relevant to who I am and what I value most or my basic human needs, or if you look at it the other way, my basic human needs that are going unmet at the moment. And if I believe that I'm capable of getting there, right? I mean, I'm not going to get on the stage coach if I believe it's going in the opposite direction of where I want to go, you know, and what's that called? Intelligence. So coaches help you create micro habits, micro wins that develop progressive self-efficacy and self-efficacy is simply your belief in your ability to take the necessary actions that lead to certain outcomes. And they do this with empathy. You know, a coach in no way feels for you, but they feel with you. They hold you in unconditional positive regard, and they can imaginatively project themselves into the thoughts and feelings and situations of the person. So they're non-judgmental. They don't moralize a situation. And the fourth element, what I believe coaches do that's really important, is they understand that if you say you want one thing, like I want weight loss, but what you really engage in is haagen well, it's not because you're lazy. It's not because you're a liar. It's not because you lack strength and weakness. I mean, we can talk about this later, but there's so much evidence in your life that that is absolutely not true about you, no matter what you know, your social media guru happens to think about that subject, what you actually are lacking is alignment between what truly matters most and what you're attempting to do. And what you're probably struggling with is ambivalence, where you want two things that are in direct conflict with one another. Like when I was five, you know, I really wanted a cat, but I also really wanted a parakeet. Those two things are in direct conflict with one another. Very bad pets to have in the same room. So, by the way, I didn't get so, either. Sad oh, you story. didn't have them. I was worried about fate of both of them. Either of those. What I did get was a dog that pooed on the rug, and then you know he got gave away. Anyway, that's very traumatic. Don't want to talk about that right now. But <laughs> so what? What a coach does is sees resistance as a normal part of the change process. And rather than looking at it as insubordination, which is not the nature of a coaching relationship, coaches tend to roll with that resistance rather than see it as a sign of something that should not be occurring in the process. Mm -hmm. So what I hear from you quite often, uh, people try to fit people in, in their culture and everything, they break them. And this is what they're dealing with resistance is the way they deal with it. They, they break the person and they build their own way. What's your view on this type of style coaching? Obviously, would be quite uh, strong. But. Well, I mean, what do we mean when we break them? Are we trying to break a certain behavior pattern? 
Are we trying to break a certain belief system? Are, are, are we trying to break the person's will <laughs> because we believe that their worldview is wrong because it doesn't match our worldview? And, and by the way, that is the proper methodology of establishing a right worldview versus a wrong worldview. The worldview that you have is always the right one. And if somebody disagrees, well, they're obviously mental and they're wrong. So yeah, all right, you're welcome. That's perfect litmus test. Of course, I'm taking the piss, but it's kind of the way some of us do tend to look at the world. I think if you're holding anyone in any position other than unconditional positive regard. And that doesn't mean you accept everything they say and everything they do. And if they're doing something that might be harmful to, to themselves, you know, later on in life, you, you deal with that. But if, if you're approaching your coaching relationship as I am the authority on your life, you're not the right coach. That is not a good marriage in the coaching relationship, so to speak. And I think a lot of what is disguised as motivational speaking, it's self-congratulatory. I don't know enough about you to really determine like where you're screwed up. That's not my job as a coach. As a coach, I don't fix you. And you know why I don't fix you? Because you're not broken. <laughs> and, it's, and that drives me absolutely crazy. Can, can I give you an example? Can I tell you a story? Sure. Please okay. go ahead. So... I would say about a month or two ago, I had a meeting with this guy who I have coached in the past. And it was one of those things where I was the coach and I was working in partnership with his personal trainer. Now, his personal trainer is someone who I love and adore. I've known this woman for, I don't know, over 20 years. She's like, I'm so frustrated with this guy. Okay, what's going on? And well, he's completely unmotivated. He has no discipline. He breaks his commitments constantly. Well, sounds like he's got a couple of obstacles. He's like, I really think you should coach him. So this is years ago. So let's fast forward to the meeting. I walk into this guy's like 25-room mansion. So he's not a billionaire, by the way, but he's pretty close to it. He is worth several hundreds of millions of dollars. And now, if you're like me, you're standing in this house that's kind of like a boutique hotel, and you're thinking, hmm, how does a guy come into this country, build himself up, you know, coming in, not really knowing the language at first, not really having connections, and become this guy by being lazy, unmotivated, lacking discipline, and no concept of commitment? So does something sound wrong to you in this story so far? Hmm. And I think that's how we view people sometimes. You know, we say to them something like, well, you just need to be more motivated. You need to be willing to do the hard work because they're struggling with something like weight loss. But, but then you, you look at another part of their life and they're running three businesses and you couldn't live for 72 hours in this person's world. Where are you drawing these conclusions from? Or it's the opposite. <laughs> Maybe you're coaching somebody on their finances, but if you take a look at them, they're in amazing levels of physical fitness or they're an incredible parent. So there's a branch of coaching called appreciative inquiry. And appreciative inquiry kind of looks at not, not what's wrong with this person, but let's take a look at what's right. And you know, this is a methodology that Martin Seligman 
was very fond of. He's considered to be the father of positive psychology. And, you know, I'm not that big of a fan of positivity <laughs> per se, but it's a very good place to start because if you can identify for somebody where they're doing something very right and what their innate strategies, attributes, and character traits are that help them to perform well in that area, you can usually expand all of those attributes into other areas where they're struggling. In other words, kind of align them in that direction. You know, they obviously have a will to go down that path. You know, that's why they're being coached to begin with. Is that what you're saying? I just think they are successful because they are applying certain behaviors in order to achieve this success in this area and their values make it effortless for them in this direction. So what I think my understanding is... There you go. You're, you're taking these tools from this part of their life and applying them to the part of the life where they want to be, but at the moment there is a resistance due to the lack of alignment of these values. That is said, like, better than I said it. As a matter of fact, You're I don't welcome. Know. You're welcome. I think I should actually interview you, Nadia. I think... Uh, it's the next podcast. We just need to confirm the time. (laughs) Let me go back to this guy for a second because here's a presupposition that I have about life. When values and behaviors start to align, all of the attributes that we associate with success, like passion, commitment, discipline, they all show up automatically. I'll tell you what I mean. So this guy is super successful, but he's, he's kind of missing workouts. He's not sticking to his diet plan. And when you talk to him about it, I'm going to skip over the long story. The short story is he linked up at some point in his life that when you love your family and this guy lives for his family, the one thing you do is you provide for them. <laughs> and he has done an impeccable job of that. Well done there, sir. But you also spend time with them. Now, do you see where there's this conflict? He works so hard in a business because he wants to give his family everything he possibly can. And a lot of times that is very time consuming. So he's on the road a lot. And when he's on the road, he's not with the people he loves most in the world and the people who he most want to be with. Then when he comes home, He's working. He's in his office, in his house. That takes up many, many hours in the day. So there's finite periods of time where he can spend with his family. And over the years, he's established certain rituals like popcorn, movie night, let's say, with his wife. It's a glass of wine every evening. So when he goes to the gym, what he's actually doing is trading the very small, precious period of time he has with his family for the workout. So, of course, you can say, well, you know, in a few years, you'll be healthier and you're doing this for your family. But in the moment, he has to sacrifice what matters most to engage in a behavior that matters less. And his thing is, I am tired of having trainers tell me I am failing every step of the way. And I'm a failure and that, you know, I, my wine is something I have to give up. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of the constant criticism because I don't think I'm a total failure in life. <laughs> well, I would kind of agree with him. So do you see, that's a perfect example of ambivalence. And that's what people struggle with 
not necessarily with laziness. This guy is anything but lazy, but you're yep. right. When those, when those values align, things starts to ha happen. A lot of our listeners will be probably crying at this point because this is exactly what they are struggling with. They're trying to make business yeah. successful and the purpose of being successful in business is be better provider, have better quality of life with your family, yet you're taking away time from what from people who you want to spend time and what it's this for. It kind of creates this paradox. And the way out of this paradox is, I think, just learning about the, how to align these values and how to involve your family in activities which you have to spend time with, but maybe even involving your son like Terence does in business with him. So he missed out on time with his son. Now they're catching up his son side by side helping him to build something really magnificent they got common goal now and it's amazing to see this duo doing amazing stuff what i do want to i really want to zoom in in very interesting point you touched in one of your interviews and i am going to capitalize on it a lot of coaches think they are coaches because they had personal experience in business, let's say, or personal training, they, they've been trained and they apply their personal experience and think they are established coaches now. You have very different point of view on this one. Would you like to share? Yeah, there's three domains, I think, when you're helping somebody with development. And there's actually these domains overlap. And if you've ever noticed in a lot of major companies, there's always a training and development department. There's always learning and development. And people get confused. Like, what's the difference between training and what's the difference between development? And when you ask people, they're like, well, development is the long-term consequence of continual training. It's not. The three domains are tools, training, and development. And training is knowing what to do. What are the processes and what are the skills you need to acquire where development doesn't deal so much with the doing aspect, but the being aspect? Who do you need to be? What is the internal work that you need to go through in your life to be able to get access? You know, I'm fascinated with the word access. I had a coach say, you know, 80%, and th these are not exact stats. He was using this as an example. He said 20% of everything is knowing what to do. 80% of it is getting the access intrinsically to get yourself to utilize those tools and resources and actually do what you know you should do. And then you have tools. That's, that's just what you have to help you get there. So if you're going to have a bicycle race and you don't have a bicycle, well, that's a problem. So the bicycle is a tool. But then you need to understand a little bit about how to race. You have to go through the levels of physical conditioning. You got to understand the rules of the race itself. But then you, you need to, when you're completely spent, you got to know how to dig down deep and push just a little bit harder. And that's not knowing what to do. That's a facet of knowing who you need to be in that situation. And when you coach someone, a lot of times it's not what you put in, like information, skill sets. It's what you draw out of somebody. And a lot of times people approach coaching the way they use their smartphone. It's like, well, I have this upgrade, this software upgrade. 
I'm going to download it and the person's just going to work better. Sorry, people are a little bit more complicated than that. I mean, if only that were true, right? So when you're dealing with someone, you can instruct, which is valuable, which is there's two factors. There's knowledge of results. This is what you want to have happen. And then there's knowledge of performance, what's actually happening. And I give you instructions and I give you feedback and you give it another go. And I see the improvement or lack thereof. I progress you or regress you, but I give you certain cues where you could start to now shorten that gap between what's occurring and what you want to have occur. Great. Then there's teaching where I'm going to tell you what to do based on my expertise. And expertise is a whole different subject. You're going to go away and you're going to apply it. You're not going to do it in front of me, right? If a nutritionist is going to give you dietary information, you're not going to eat in front of her, hopefully. That's disgusting. But you're going to go away and you're going to come back and you're going to self-report what actually occurred. Where the coaching aspect is I'm going to use tools like inquiry. I'm going to use tools like reflections. I'm going to summarize what you're saying. I'm going to basically hold a mirror up to you and allow you to draw your own conclusions based on what you already know. You see, an expert, a great guy you might want to interview is Dr. Roy Sugarman. And he's very fond of saying, you know, coaching is not about being the sage on the stage. It's about being the guide by the side. Now, there's room for the sage on the stage, and there's value there. But in the coaching relationship, if you want to look at it like mythology, the thread from which the fabric of all civilizations is interwoven is contained within mythology and stories that have been passed down. So if you look at Joseph Campbell's assessment and explanation of the hero's journey, the most important person in any story. And if you're listening to this right now, think about your favorite film, right? And then ask yourself, like, you know, I was discussing this with a very geeky person and they're like Star Wars, you know, the original ones, obviously. And this, you know, who's, who's the most important person in that story? And it wasn't Luke Skywalker, you know, and, and it wasn't Darth Vader, obviously. I mean, he was definitely the, had the coolest outfit, but the most important person in that story was Obi-Wan Kenobi because he wasn't the hero. If, if he didn't show up as the guide, you know, it would have been a story about a kid living in a desert like the rest of his life after his aunt and uncle were killed. There's no sequel opportunity for that. Nobody's going to show up for round two of that film, are they? No one's going to queue all the way around the corner to see a story like that. It was the guide showing up at pivotal moments throughout that storyline to help that hero gain insights and gain, find the courage within himself to keep moving until he faced a pivotal moment, a pivotal decision, looked into the abyss long enough for the abyss to stare back and then still move forward. And if you take a look at that, any hero at the end of that story, you know what that's all about? You become better not just for yourself, but you get to go back to where you came from and contribute to your tribe, your people, your country, your company. That is the whole lesson of the hero's journey. And coaches are the guide 
They're not the hero. You are not the expert in your client's life. They're the expert. You're there to just help them draw that out. Hmm. Yeah, I'm probably inclined to agree. I think a big mistake that I see in coaching is that you're looking at it as information. The way I think about coaching is it's not inform- It's not about just feeding in this information to try to get the outcome that you want. It's about developing the transformation that's right for the person that you're actually coaching. And yeah. make this person own this transformation rather than enforce, imposed. It's the person wants to go through this transformation. Correct. And ownership of transformation falls not with the coach, but with the transformee. It's for me, yes. You guys are saying a lot of really important things in my mind. So a lot of things to unpack. I went to work for a CEO years ago. He took over you know, what's arguably one of, if not the, the largest health club chain in North America. And he was a little bit of a different guy. And the job he was recruiting me for, just it didn't fit normally, but I went because of who this individual was and his vision. And one of the things that he really operated on was that mission statements (laughs) are kind of incomplete. He wasn't a big fan of them. And mission statements are, you know, they're simply an answer to a question, why do we exist? And when you read them, they're usually about a certain group of people. What we want is this, and our mission is, or my mission is, he operated from something he referred to as originating intention. This is just pause. Don't forget this story. I just want to do something here very bad. Ooh. You said you got to it. Is it yes. correct? Yes, so I do. At what point of time did you change your destructive turret words, abusive turret words? With I think you still got it, but you're throwing very smart words now. It's a compulsive for you. You are so good with language, but I think there is some superpower there, and I think it's in your turret. Is it correct? Can I offend you like that? No, it doesn't offend me at all. You know, it's something I've thought about quite a bit. It was more present when I was younger, you know, for a lot of reasons. And, you know, I I was evaluated not too long ago by a neuroscientist, and he, he estimated that I've had more than half a dozen major concussions. I was put on experimental medication when I was younger that destroyed parts of my brain. So I have a lot of brain damage. And as I get older, that's becoming more and more apparent and it's it's more of a struggle. However, there were aspects and, and and I was watching a documentary on Robin Williams on the plane not too long ago. And I am by no means comparing myself to the genius of Robin Williams. If I had 1% of his capacity, I'd be over the moon. However, when I looked at him and how he lived his life and what he struggled with and where he was just an incomprehensible genius, I was like, this guy looks like he has Tourette's. (laughs) It's like, he looks like he's a Tourette's guy that they just stood up in front of the room and let him go. And when I was younger, I had so much impulsivity and idea a second. And it it was almost like I took three Adderalls like first thing every morning. And I lived like that. And I think in some ways, yes. Yes, Nadia, my Tourette's has been a a tremendous benefit to me. Mm -hmm. So please come back to your wonderful story about why 
and uh, basically mission statements. We were all ah. mission statements when I rudely interrupted you because I really thought I need to jam these two rats in in and make listeners appreciate your intelligence. No, that's brilliant. Interrupt me at any time. I mean, that's what Tourette's is for, to be on one place and then go tangent and then go do something. Squirrel! Okay, anyway. So, sorry, that was loud. I'm in my hotel room. This is like a big echo. They could use a bit more carpeting in here, to be fair. But anyway, so originating intention. He operated off of what he called originating intention, which is what you value so deeply. And it's given you an experience of so much joy and fulfillment that it is sacred. And it is so sacred that you come to the realization that what you want most for yourself is also what you simultaneously want for everybody else. And that's how you know the difference. See, mission statements are focused on we and me, where originating intention most often starts with the word you. It's about what I want for you. And by focusing on what I want and how I can serve you through that medium, it brings out and refines and develops the best within me. And I thought, wow, that is absolutely beautiful. So, and his originating intention for the company, and I have held this since, is you can have what you truly want. And I think that's a beautiful space for a coach is I believe that you have the ability, you have that capacity to identify and actualize what is most sacred for you. Now, a lot of coaches come from the perspective of you can have what I really want for you. <laughs> that's, that's a little bit skewed. That's an interesting perspective where I think true coaching is you can have what you truly want. And that's a different type of space to hold. And there was a couple of other points that you guys made that was interesting to me, but I forgot exactly what they were now. Because Nadia interrupted me. <laughs> I will do it again and again, She's, because every time I interrupt you, you will come with some nugget. She's good at it though. Yeah, I'm <laughs> and I've, I've a, got a well need to interrupt, and I'm just sitting there, and I'm I actually very irritating as a person to talk to because I suddenly always find the shiny object in your little speech. You tell me a story, you want to take me this way, but I just think there is a potential in this little jingle you just waved in front of me, and I want to go there, and I know I have to hold that big road for you because you want to be there, but I just. Let's take a little detour and I will take you back where you want to go. At this, my style. Good interviewing skills. Where <laughs> were you last so. night, though? Like, um, seriously, in the pub at about like half past nine, I could have really used your help. But anyway. Well, next time, <laughs> you just dial my number. I Wrong. don't know. You're not helpless. How's your hands going? <laughs> So what I do want, we have discussed expertise versus personal experience, and it's not the same. Just because you've done things over and over again, don't call yourself an expert. There is more to it. I think this we've missed one of the points here, though, which is that, like, how are we changing our focus from what's best for the person? You know, you said you can have what you truly want, right? What's the mm -hmm. best way, the best tool that you've got to change the focus from what we truly want for someone else to what they truly want for themselves? Now, I very rarely answer questions like this because it really annoys me when people do this, but just do that. If you're a client 
And, you know, somebody says, well, oh, you know what? I keep worrying about this and that. And the coach goes, well, just stop worrying. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Captain Obvious. <laughs> Never occurred to me to stop that. <laughs> but if you're a coach, like your intention has to be on what's most important for that person. So just do that. Suspend your own need to project your autobiography into somebody else's life story. <laughs> just stop doing that shit. Yeah. If you're the client, like when we tell someone, you just have to believe in yourself. Yeah. Oh, really? Well, how do I, someone who believes I have no evidence to support this belief in myself and who struggles with self-belief, just go out and just believe. I was watching this guy like, like giving a webinar about this. And he's like, you know, the first thing you need to do is change your beliefs. My beliefs are so hardwired into the patterns in my brain. I might not even be aware of what my beliefs are consciously, yet I'm going to consciously go, yeah, I don't believe that anymore. Wow, that's easy. You know, I'll just go to a vending machine that dispenses belief right next to Coca-Cola. <laughs> B4. Okay, got a can of belief now. Problem solved. But yeah, in that case, I guess my short answer, maybe it's a cop-out, is if you're a coach and you want something for someone more than they want it for themselves, you've got an agenda. And that's different than the Pygmalion effect. It's different than a high level of expectation where you expect like more from somebody than they expect from themselves. You see more in someone than they see in terms of possibilities for themselves. That's holding space. That's part of being a good guide. Because what does a guide do? If you need a tour guide to get you through the forest and you cannot see yourself successfully making that journey based on what you know about, I don't know, forestry, a really good guide helps you just go as far as you can see. Because once you get there, what happens? Oh, now I can see further. So that's great. But what I'm saying is you have a value that that person doesn't share, but you think you have the right value and they have the wrong value. Do get over that. Do you think it happens often? That's gold because do you think it's happened often? That's it. It's this festival is suspend. You need to project your own autobiography. So there is an unrealized ego sitting, ego, ego. How do you say it? Ego. Ego sitting inside of us, and this is completely. This is attempt of voyeuristic existence through somebody because you haven't fulfilled it, and you think this guy got this potential to get me where I want to be. It. I still can fulfill my ego because this is me who got him there. Do you think this is what motivates those people to do this style of coaching? Well, the optimist in me thinks that a lot of people who are doing this are not doing this because they're manipulative and they are you know, seeking accolades or they're looking to boost their own sense of self-importance. I think definitely there are people out there like that. And, you know, a lot of them are on your social media threads, but I think most people have very good intentions. I think most people look at someone and they're like, oh, this worked for me. I, I know you can do that. And that's great. That's great to hold that space because a lot of transformation has a lot to do with the coach's belief in the client's ability to change. But sometimes that comes out in terms of me projecting my worldview onto you and insisting that you should accept it. And it's easy to do because you cannot be passionate. You cannot be committed to anything in life and not develop 
certain biases. You know, the more committed you are and the older you get, the more you become this walking bag of biases. But it's important to acknowledge that. You know, the first part of being a little bit more unbiased is acknowledging that I am, in fact, biased. Just like, you know, authenticity. The first part of being an authentic human being is to acknowledge your areas of inauthenticity. And that's a hard hurdle. But if we can't do that, it makes it harder for us to lead someone to where they want to go rather than pushing them in that direction or dragging them whether they want to go or not. Great. What I do want also to unpack a little bit, I've got a few exciting things I picked up from your prior interviews. And I thought, gee, that's... Uh, you like cyber-stalking me, Nadia. Is it bad? No, I kind of like it. Well, that's, I will continue doing so if you like it. So emotions are most provocative elements of behaviors. I really want to talk about it because quite often people make decisions based on emotions which leads to unwanted consequences which both of the parties didn't intend to come to however mm. the emotions like hostages the, sorry like hijackers they hijacked them and they led them to completely different path can you just unpack this emotion and our because business decisions are quite often based on emotions we buy based on emotions and all this but i want your perspective on it it's so interesting Well, I think as much as we love to think that we are rational, you know, Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in economics, something that for someone with a psychology and neuroscience background to do is a little bit unusual. And he did it by proving how absolutely irrational and emotional we are in our decision making. And I think I had a very interesting conversation on an interview very similar to this with Joseph Ledoux. What do you mean? To have like a conversation similar, similar to ours. It's impossible. Yes. Well, it's impossible to have a conversation with someone similar to you. However, uh, this forum is what I meant. I meant like, you know, like this type of interview. I will recover. I it's fine. Keep going. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> anyway, uh, so I had a conversation with Joseph Ledoux, who is one of the foremost neuroscientists in the world. He's probably one of the most widely quoted and cited neuroscientists still living today. And he said that, you know, he was comparing it to exercise because he knew my background in the fitness industry. And he said, you know, as a trainer, and this was so insightful, if somebody comes in and I don't know, let's say they want to work on a body part. And he was like, let's say I want to make my arms bigger, my biceps. What do you need to know? Where are you going to look as a trainer first? He's like, you can regurgitate an exercise, but that's not real expertise. Or you can take a look at the anatomy and say that anatomy, that structure dictates function. I'm like, wow, very insightful, <laughs> you know? And he said, well, it's the same thing with the brain. If you want to understand why people behave the way they do, a lot of times, you know, people jump to, and he wasn't saying this, I'm, I'm adding this, they jump to character or they moralize, but Look at the anatomy of the brain. And he said, if you look at the structures connecting the limbic system of the brain, which is more your emotional brain center, to oversimplify it, and how it connects to your prefrontal lobes, 
which is your executive decision-making part of the brain, there are a thick bundle of ascending pathways which structurally dictate that the emotional centers of the brain have more influence in times of arousal, not just sexual arousal, I mean any type of arousal, we know that about sexual arousal, but anyway, has more influence in times of arousal over your thinking centers of the brain than your thinking centers structurally impact your emotional centers. And this is because in a crisis, speed is more important than accuracy. Like if I'm walking with my tribe through thick forest and I hear rustling in the bushes, you know, we don't have time to go, hey, let's think about that. What, what could that be? Could that be the wind? Or I don't know, maybe my foot caught a... Br- it could be a tiger. Just freaking run, run. And if it's not a tiger, okay, you look like a bunch of idiots. It's prehistoric times. There's like 600 people in the world. Nobody's going to see you anyway. But if it was a tiger, you saved your life by reacting emotionally and very quickly. And so, yes, emotions are the most powerful drivers of behaviors, the most expeditious influences of behaviors, if you will. That's funny. Everything else develops, but we're still so archaic in our emotions. This is what I can't understand. We are holding. So entire purpose of personal development is ability to manage the emotions, which very archaic and sort of modernize them. Well, I mean, evolution takes time. It takes many, many, many generations. And, and I know there's research that disputes that, but for, for the most part, we have primitive brains living in modern times. There's going to be challenges with that. You know, the, the environment that we evolved to thrive in is not exactly the one that we're living in. And there's no user's manual for this thing. So yeah, it, it can be problematic, Nadia. Another thing I want you to talk about is confirmational bias. It's really interesting phenomena. I see a lot of people caught in it and talking sometimes to certain people, it doesn't matter what you will do, whether you're right or wrong in your own world, they have slotted you in certain pattern and you're not going to get out of this pattern in their eyes ever. Well, I think a lot of times, you know, let me just first state that, you know, I have a couple of presuppositions around what influences change or what stops change from occurring. And it's more complicated than this, but the three things that I take a look at is teleology, ontology, and continuity. What that means is, one, like I said before, what is someone's highest values and what human needs are most important for them to be met or or, are not being met? That's a major influencer of what people do or don't do. Two is ontology. Like, what, 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 me, like, where do I belong? What's my sense of identity? You know, what's the group I belong to? And we get so much safety and security from this. We defend it violently, literally violently sometimes. I mean, we see this with different religions. We see this with different political views. Like, you know, we're becoming so much more polarized, left versus right, that you're like a mental case if you're a moderate somewhere in the middle. Those are the real different people. I think people on the far left and the far right, 
you're pretty much the same person with different opinions. The moderates, okay, they're crazy. <laughs> but, and, and even the foods we eat, like, you know, paleo versus vegan, it, it almost becomes like a religious battle, like a holy war over different dietary preferences. I mean, it gets so serious that if you were to lock a paleo in the same room with a vegan, they would fight so fiercely, the paleo would eventually eat the vegan. It just would happen. So it's like we do all of these things because we identify the core of our being with this. And a lot of times when we have certain positive experiences and things become very meaningful to us and, and we associate it with certain information, belief systems, practices, or people we associate with because social support is a powerful influencer on behavior. Environment is a powerful influencer on behavior that, you know, one of the main keys to transformation is affiliation. So you start to develop these worldviews and anything that's contrary to your worldview or perspective, you start to see as a threat. And how do you respond to a threat? Fight or flight. You either extricate yourself from these people. I don't associate with people that believe this. You know, how dare you force me to eat lettuce? It's my life. I'll do as I damn please. Or you fight these people. And, you know, Otto Schama in his book, Theory You, refers to cognitive biases as downloading. I only download information that supports what I already think and believe. I only hang out with people that support what I think or believe. You know, I only read books that support what I think or believe. Well, eventually, you're in a very tight echo chamber where what you consider to be learning and growing is the opposite. It's actually just reinforcing. You know, you can't live the same life, have the same experiences and think the same thoughts, but you do that with greater frequency and intensity and say that somehow I'm growing. You know, sometimes the person with a very different opinion, I mean, and I said this once and I got so much hate mail for it and that's cool because it's fun to read. They're usually entertaining. The best thing a conservative can do is sit down and have a chat with a liberal, not have a debate, not have an argument, but have a chat and a liberal with a conservative, you know, like Christian, Muslim, you know, vegan, paleo. And if you could ever suspend the attachment to your worldview and go, okay, well, this, let's assume this person's not a complete psychopath, that they're actually an intelligent person that has a different perspective based on different experiences and interpretations, that's where learning is going to take place. This is where neuroplasticity happens because you're challenging your past ways of thinking and your brain expands. And I always encourage this diversity of thought. And I think if I'm in a room, this is where I can't reconcile yet fully the notion with find your tribe. What is your tribe then? Is it Oh, like-minded people, but I don't want like-minded people. I want different-minded people around me. Terence is total polar opposite to me. That's why I value his opinion, because he knows things I don't know. I never will be expert in these areas. And opposite would also apply probably to him. I hope so, but it's just an assumption. So what I hear from you is I find person who thinks supports my, you, I'm a bit confirmational bias. exercise here, confirmational bias with you because I suddenly hear something I wanted to hear. And it's another paradox I'm throwing in the air. 
Mm-hmm. It pleases me to hear what you're saying, which means I am excited about being alike in this little aspect of our thinking. Yeah, you know, and I think you can have both. When you're looking for tribe and you're building a culture, you have to ask yourself, well, what is a culture? Because that's another thing we talk about all the time. Culture is so important, and, and it is. Culture is critical. You know, Peter Drucker, one of the greatest business thinkers in my and many people's opinions of the 20th century, you know, said that culture eats strategy for breakfast. But <laughs> what exactly do you mean when you say the word culture? And, you know, I think culture refers to a group of people that share common beliefs. They follow certain rules, not rules that are imposed upon them, but rules that they accept as part of that tribe, if you want to use that word. And those beliefs and rules produce certain predictable behaviors. And you, within a culture, within a tribe, there are people with different perspectives and different abilities. I mean, you know, you have your, you have hunters, but you have gatherers, you have people who can make things, you know, you need all of these people and it's possible to share a common vision with a group of people, but have very different opinions about how to go about fulfilling that vision. Um, You know, one of the things, one of my boss's consultants, he brought in someone and he was coaching me when I was a very young manager. And one of the things he said is, if you have two people on your team who think exactly the same, fire one of them. Who needs that level of redundancy? And I thought that was pretty funny. You know, he, I don't think he was being slightly facetious when he said that, but he made a very good point, you know, because the stupidest advice I've ever gotten is you want to find someone just like you and just make them a clone of yourself. This is where business owners have this urge to find somebody just like them, to replace them. Reality is they need to find the few people, actually. So This, this, is, really, this is really interesting because I get this a lot. If I'm there, I could clone myself, you know, my business would be running amazing. And that's probably not the way to it's run a great team, is it? Bias. <laughs> well, you know, it, I'm, I'm a little bit you know, I'm a little bit more forgiving about this because I spent the early part of my career as a manager, then a senior manager. And, you know, I I was doing very well operating in other people's companies. And and as an entrepreneur, you know, you, you start your own business and you're like, oh, I'm really good here, but this is very different. And I'm getting my ass kicked. And I kind of understand where other entrepreneurs are coming from. If you know that your system needs to duplicate itself, right? You have to scale your business. So if you're looking to hire someone who follows the same exact systems and policies and strategies that you do, great. I understand that. Could you imagine trying to get a latte on a Friday night at a coffee shop, let's just say Starbucks, anywhere in the world, if that 19-year-old kid behind the bar didn't go through a very specific training program and was allowed to bring their creativity. I mean, you, <laughs> in, in, some, in some cases, you would get a brilliant latte. And in some cases, you would get a latte that is completely shocking. And you know nobody in Melbourne's going to tolerate that shit because you take your coffee quite seriously and, and well done there. But 
you know, I think when you talk about someone who shares my, my vision, my values, someone who shares my principles, I get that. But if you're not going to hire people who think differently than you as well, and who are smarter than you, and let them think because you hired them because they are smarter than you and they are more capable than you, your business isn't going to be able to have the diversity and therefore flexibility and speed of adaptation that you need to compete in the marketplace. So I understand where people come from when they say that. And I understand where people come from when they have a completely different opinion. And I think the older I get, I stop seeing the world as this or this, it's and. Both are correct. And I think you need elements of both in any organization, in any group of people, you know, trying to do pretty much anything. In order for replicate the same outcome, you need similar processes, which this is what I wish two of me were there. But in order to grow to next level, and we're talking about, you have to employ this law of denying everything you believe in and go to next level up. And you know, my favorite laws are uh, laws of dialectics by Gegel. So I know three of them and they always work every time. I've known people, and of course I'm not going to mention them, but I'm thinking about this one guy and he What's his made, name? I, I'm not going to mention him <laughs> because I love this guy, but for a guy who's so intelligent and whenever you're super, super intelligent in one area or two areas, you're probably deficient in a few others. And his business would have grown so much if he didn't have to control absolutely everything. And if he allowed himself to listen to the ideas and expertise of the people he, he hired around him. But that's all I have to say on that. There's a Steve Jobs quote there. Pretty sure it was Steve Jobs. I don't want to hire smart people to tell them what to do. I want to hire smart people so they can tell me what to do. Really yeah, exactly. Why would you go through the trouble of hiring someone who has the capacity to be an A player hmm. just to supervise exact, not only what they do, but how they think? <laughs> the other point that I keep thinking about as you're talking about this stuff is hearing about people saying, if when I hire someone, they're never as, you know, they just don't operate at the same level as me. I can only expect 80%, you know, when you hire someone. And I hear that with hiring teams probably too often, not all the time, but too often, more often than it needs to be. And the way I think about it is that if you put together a good team, you won't get somebody who's going to do everything 100% the way that you do it or 100% as well the way that you do it. But they could maybe do some things twice as well as you, right? In specific areas, mm -hmm. particularly yeah. if you train them, right? Definitely. And when you put together a team, you are increasing, significantly increasing, in fact, exponentially increasing your capabilities by putting together the right team rather than trying to put, to, put together these, what do we call them, clones, that are all just like you, you can have people in particular areas that are, operate better than you. If you will let them be better than you is probably part of it. If you just let go and let them be better than you. But that's the whole purpose of building a team. Let's build up people around us and bring something else to this game. I think whenever you see a business grow to a certain capacity, you're dealing with a group of people that have done exactly what you just said. I mean, we use Starbucks. So let's use them as, as another example. You know, they had to have done that. 
Could you imagine Howard Schultz in the early days going, oh man, no one's going to make a latte as good as me. I'm going to make every latte. And he's like driving around town. Like he's got his foot on the accelerator going from shop to shop. I don't think Starbucks would have grown to the entity it is today if that was his mentality. At some point, you're going to have to do that. And I don't think everybody has to grow their business like that, you know? But at some point, you're going to have to to think a little bit like that. What I actually did like about this point uh, you have mentioned, it's by having diverse people around you, you increasing your chances of exercising this adaptability muscle. The changes which will be, it's one of the futurists which I'm inviting the podcast, is he's going to come, basically said and that the change will come from peripheral. You are not, it's not going to slam you in the face. It's sneak on you from some peripheral. And people with different, with, if your team is diverse, you have more chances to spot the change coming at you rather than being so myopic and settle in one direction. This is where I think the way of thinking and reconciliation for me lies in these two agendas. So we had really productive long chat. Would you like to ask something else? Would you like to ask us about something because you really wanted to interview me. Well, okay. So here's one thing. What was the turning point for you? I'll start with the initial question that you had for me or the conversation early on. When you show up in another country, not speaking the language, with just one bag of clothing, that's tragic for any girl. What was the incident or realization where you went from that girl to who you are today? Someone who in your own right is very successful and very well respected. The turning point was really this what has driven me is being the person, the same person, feeling the same way I felt in Russia. In Russia, I was a journalist. I was surrounded by smart thinkers, really intelligent people, interesting, and I could approach people like yourself and have the most amazing interview. And when I came here, I was looked down upon. I was beaten up like a dog, just basically the jokes, the projections, the perceptions of Russian women and everything was here. So I had to cope with it. So I developed a mechanism where I basically was trying to, my thing was why my driving force behind it all was obviously my children. I was using every possible contraception, yet I still was falling pregnant and nothing I could do about it. So at the end, I had four kids I had to provide for, and I couldn't rely on my husband. One person, I thought, it's very bad odds for me. If something happens to him, these four kids have to survive. So this was my driving force behind everything. So I was one of those, you know, dogs. Have you seen dogs with those teeth hanging out where she needs to feed her puppies? I mm-hmm. was one of those ugly dogs who just was desperate to get somewhere. And then I knew that they're not going to learn from me. I will tell them, or oh, be this, be successful, be everything. I have to teach them in action how it has to happen. And that's what was driving me. Yeah, wow. Honest and open, but this is what ah. it was. Probably image of the, this speech with hanging kids wasn't really good, but it's a highlight of the podcast. Yeah, it, it, it definitely leaves a visual impression. You know, I think that 
one of our early points on coaching so resonates with that story because you look at people who, you know, and, and you come to conclusions about who they are without really knowing anything about them or, or their story. And, you know, I, I think we've all known people and I've known people who like hopeless, they can't hold down a job. They're in and out of relationships, you know, excessive abuse of, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever, alcohol, drugs. There's people like threaten, they coach, they try to inspire, they do interventions, nothing works. And something happens with this person. Like they have a child and all of a sudden there is a value or a, a, an expression of a value that shows up in their life. And th this person is completely transformed. I had someone who I worked with who I was extremely attracted to. I'm not just I'm not talking about like physically, just, just there was this electric banter. And, and this woman was so playful and intelligent and principled and hardworking. And I, and I just wanted to know more about her. And it was like for her, it, it, her story was she was always about the next party, the next drink. And, you know, she got pregnant. And she was like, oh, no, I, the last thing I want in this world is a kid. That is the last thing. And so she's like, I, I better get married. Uh, you know, so she decides to marry this guy. And on her wedding day, he left her at the altar. He didn't show. And she was very pregnant at this point. He does not even show up. And I can't imagine how it felt to be her. But I've tried because like, this is someone who I have so much affection for. And she's just like, my life is ruined. And like, even, even like going into labor, it's like, oh. and then she has this baby. And she looks at this little girl and falls in love. And it's like, you know, her life didn't get better at that point, but she completely changed. She got better at that point. And she you know, became this extraordinary person. She owns like several properties. You know, she's, in, she's, she's like a vice president of a very prominent company. She like literally turned her life around because she changed right there. Because there was something so meaningful that she embraced it in the moments of intense pleasure and embraced it even in moments of intense suffering. And I think, you know, Viktor Frankl said that despair is suffering in the absence of meaning. And I think when the, you suffer in the presence of meaning, it doesn't cause despair, but it reinforces, it strengthens, it, it, it empowers. That's very nice way to finish our podcast. It's very powerful, actually, those words. And meaning, it's all about us humans moving us, it's our meaning of life and our purpose. Anything else to add? No. I'm just Amazing. speechless. I really, I'm speechless after this one. Goosebumps going to, oh, because it's so relevant to my experience. So <laughs> I, got nothing, uh, I got nothing else uh, to say. No, that's all good. I think we've covered a lot. We really appreciate your time, Bobby. And Thank you so much. I enjoyed this. You being... Uh, Did you really enjoy it? I wouldn't say... I'm not one of those people that say, hey, that was great if it really wasn't. 
That was I'm great. Saying, and then you get off again. I, I just guys, say, look, I've got an early, I've got an early meeting. I'm just milking, he said. He <laughs> it and I'm milking it. Yeah, so Bobby, we really appreciate you being so generous, sharing not just your time, but all of that knowledge, all of the, all of the thoughts. And, uh... you, you're absolutely amazing. What I will tell you, when I was sitting in audience, when I first time met you, and you said your face was deformed and everything, and I go, wow, this guy is really looking hot. And those, by the way, those guns, they have to have license on them. But anyway, this, this is the thing. When you start talking about your life, and then, my goodness, it's just... It's the only presentation. Craig, I'm sorry, I was like a lapses of attention was happening sometimes on others, but it was the presentation which just really captivated me. And I haven't changed since then. It still stayed the same. So I hope to have you one day again to tell the actual story. And if you In don't person. mind, just don't be hangover anymore. But although it didn't <laughs> stop you from being amazing today, so be hangover. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Bobby. Mario. Before you go, how can our listener connect with you? Well, I'm on all you know, all the major social media platforms that the kids are crazy about today. You know, Instagram, you know, Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah, you can find sure. me, Bobby sure. Capuccio. Awesome. All right. Thanks for that. Thank you. Talk to you again Thank soon. You. Thanks for listening to the Unfair Advantage Project. For more curated resources, visit us at unfairadvantageproject.com.